Immersive Audio Podcast. In conversation with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business, to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast, brought to you by 1618 Digital. Today, host Oliver Cadell is joined by Justin Patterson in our London Fields office. Justin's research into many aspects of music production and audio technology has been widely published. In 2014, Justin was awarded an AHRC grant to develop an app release format for music albums with interactive playback, a system that is currently patent pending and undergoing further AHRC funded commercial exploitation by the Warner Music Group. Justin also worked with record label NinjaTune on binaural 3D interactive audio for VR. He co-wrote a chapter on 3D music production in a forthcoming Rutledge edition in the Perspectives on Music Production series, and is also co-editor of a newly commissioned Rutledge book on 3D audio. As we heard in the introduction, your biography is very interesting and diverse. How did you get into the industry? Well, I started off as an engineer. I was a silicon chip designer, and that wasn't really doing it for me. I was much more into music. And so I became, I got a scholarship to music college and I became a drummer. And as a pro drummer in the 90s, that was quite an interesting time to be a drummer because it was the, the advance of, of technology. We had drum machines and stuff in the 80s, but it wasn't really until the 90s that kind of studio technology started getting good enough to really replace drummers with slightly more authentic sounding programmed parts. And I went along to a session one time and started unpacking all my gear and the producer said, oh, don't bother, don't bother, we're just going to program this one. I went, what? But I, I'm, I'm here, I've brought my stuff. And he said, no, that's the sound we're after, you know, it'll sound good. And so this guy, he, he was very capable and he started doing this stuff and he programmed this drum part. And I thought, well, I sort to see the point, but I could do it better if only I knew how to work this machine. And I, you know, I was watching this secret combination of button pushes with this tiny little LCD screen and thinking, wow, what's all that about? And it was completely alien to me. And they ended up with a drum track that I didn't really like very much. And I thought, I've got to get into programming. So I started learning how to program drum beats simply so that I could function in that new kind of studio arena that was coming along. And so I, I became sort of known as a programmer, I started getting work as a, as a programmer as opposed to a player. And that sort of became the thing. Back then you could be a programmer. It was a, a sort of different career path from being like an engineer or, or a producer because there were a lot of machines that had to be programmed and engineers were often very concerned with microphones and things and there were guys who pushed the buttons. Um, so programming kind of led naturally onto kind of synthesis and I started getting into making my own sounds and Eventually, of course, um, the, the technologies came along that allowed me to, to sequence those sounds as well as just the, the drum parts that I'd been doing originally. And suddenly you realize that you're making tracks. And at that point, you've started to become a producer. And so that was my sort of drifting towards being a, a type producer person. And I started getting little bits of work doing that kind of thing as well. You know, it's, as we all know, it's very, very hard to sustain a career doing any of those kind of creative things. So uh, I, like many musicians, I had a bit of teaching that, that happened. And the funny thing was that um, I think something that happens to a lot of people is that the, the teaching can get to the point where it sucks you in. 
I had to I had to make a decision. I was working at a college and um, I was just part time, lots of time for professional work and a bit of teaching to stabilise the income. And then a position came up, the head of department, and whoever got that head of department was going to do all my teaching time, but it was a full time job. And I had to decide either I lose my part time job and give away to some new person coming in, or I chase the full time job and increase my commitment to the, the college. And I made a decision to do that. And so my career moved from being an, a kind of studio person into being a sort of education person. And that was a further education college. And I did that for a few years. And then I got a job at what is now the University of West London in 2004. And I've been there ever since. But that was the route into it. Amazing. Thank you for sharing. In hindsight, would you, would you do anything differently? Make more money. <laughs> if I could. Uh, no, I don't think I would do anything differently. Um, I think you always have to make the best decisions you can in the circumstances you're in, guided by the factors that are influencing your life. And, you know, what I just gave you was a sort of simplified version. There were other things going on as well, other, other dynamics and tensions. And I think I've always made the decisions based on the, 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 the situation that was around me. And I would probably appraise that the same. But it's easy to say that, isn't it? At the same time, as you go through more of life, your perspective changes because you've got that hindsight. So maybe it would be different, but I wouldn't consciously say I'd go and try and do something different. What was your first experience with immersive audio? I remember vividly because it was amazing. I was at the Audio Engineering Society convention in Budapest a few years ago, and Oro 3D had a demonstration rig there. This was our 13.1 setup. Um, Basically, it was like a sort of um, a scaffold holding up the speakers with a kind of a pod. I can't remember. But anyway, there was this little room only for Oro 3D. Uh, I thought, this is interesting. And I didn't know anything about 3D sound at all. And uh, I went along and I was slightly late. And there was only one seat left at the back of the room, right underneath the, the rear speakers in the corner. And I said to the guy, oh, I was really interested in hearing this. I'd... Um, I'd like to hear this, but um, you know, I'm, I'm going to be way out the sweet spot. Maybe I should come back later. And he said, no, sit over there. It works there. And I said, what, by the speaker, by the rear speaker? And he said, yeah, yeah, sit down to work. And I sat there and it was absolutely amazing. It was just completely enveloping. I remember, um, I think they still use it uh, as a demo today, played a, a church organ piece and the, the sense of height coming from those huge organ pipes extending up was very striking. And of course, the enveloping reverb swirled around the back um, the, um, from the church. And I remember at that time, they, they put up pictures in the demonstration of the miking techniques. And I thought, well, that's interesting, sticking mics into the back corners of rooms and, or halls, all that kind of thing. And then they played a concert, which I think was Diane Reeves, the jazz singer. It was amazing because when, I, when I'm in a studio and listening to stereo, thinking about the image, I always kind of um, think, well, I try and tune into something quite high frequency with a pronounced transient, a hi-hat or something, and you think, where is that? You know, and if you can sort of stare at the point where that, where that image is, then you know you've got a, a, a decent, um, accurate listening environment. But if, of course, it's smeared out and you say, well, it's somewhere over there, it's not so good. And I was sitting in that, in that Oro 3D demo, and I was trying to say to myself, where's the hi-hat? And I had no idea. There was no localization in the panning at all. There was this big wide, wide sound stage and the sound was going up and around. And remember, I'm at the back in the corner. Uh, and I thought about it, well, that's not very good. And then I thought, but wait a minute, why am I thinking that? It sounds great. 
And I thought about what does a concert sound like? When have you ever known where the hi-hat is when you go to a, a pop, jazz or rock concert? You don't. You just have this big, wide sound and it's not really in stereo, is it? It's, you know, you're not, you know, subtending an angle of 60 degrees with the two speakers or something, you know, to get that, that stereophonic effect. It's just a big, wide thing. And actually, even jammed in the back of the Oro 3D rig, I was getting exactly that experience. And when you shut your eyes, you felt like you, like you were in an auditorium. And from that moment, I was always interested in immersive audio. I didn't start doing it then, but it was a very striking experience. And that was really what turned my head around and made me want to start finding out more. We're going to come back to immersive audio, but I just want to go back for a bit and talk about your journey within academia. So my next question is, what do you guys do differently at London College of Music compared to other audio educational establishments? Well, I think we've got a slightly interesting profile in that we are a, a college that's a 130-year-old conservatoire, which is actually a school within a modern post-1992 university. We still, of course, have very traditional conservatoires. We have a number of private kind of popular music colleges and we have universities. And each of those kind of institutions mark out their own territory in many ways. But I think that what we have is a sort of um, a conservatoire vibe in a slightly um, popular culture in a university. So most of what students engage with is, is practice driven in the, the traditional um, classical performance composition model students do do things. But at the same time, as part of a university, of course, we deliver a lot of theory that empowers them to understand what it is they're doing and how to do things better. And hopefully there's, there's two layers of education going on. There's the layer of um, university stuff, which is traditional kind of theory of whatever subject it is. But also then there's, there's the, the doing things that actually drives it all, developing students who go on to become vocational practitioners but with a good theoretical backdrop. I mean, I haven't been at every institution in the country to compare how they do things, but I think that's probably the most unique aspect of our provision, the, the music college within the university, rather than just a university department or a music college. We kind of have a, a melting pot of those two things. You are a fantastic speaker and have traveled across the world to do so. Would you be able to tell us a bit more about your involvement with these international conferences, events, etc. In what ways they do benefit the field of immersive audio and in general? Well, I think you have to look at that question from and in general, first of all. The conferences you're referring to tend to be academically driven. The, the way that, that research works in academia the world over is that um, academics try and um, win money to conduct the research. It buys their time, it buys equipment, then they conduct the research. And the nature of research is that, on the whole, from academia, you want it to be disseminated publicly. You don't necessarily want to invent an industrial secret in the way that a company might. Companies also do research, of course. And the way to the mechanisms that are established for academics to disseminate the outcomes of their research are to attend conferences and give presentations and write papers, which are the more formal, extended version. Because in a conference, typically you just present for 20 minutes or something. You can't get, you know, the, the 5,000 words of a paper or whatever it is into that. So, so these are the, the world's mechanism for disseminating the findings of research. And by going to some of these conferences, you know, you're obliged to stand up there and tell people a summary of 
what it is you've been up to. Of course, conferences have more than just the slightly dry business of um, imparting the findings for, of papers. And typically you have workshops and tutorials and seminars and speeches and stuff that goes along. Things of general interest to, to the attendees, the, the, the delegates who go there. And I find myself involved with sometimes um, talking about other stuff. For instance, with the Audio Engineering Society, a few years ago I did a a series of drum programming tutorials for those guys. A tutorial not being something for students, but something for peers. So it works at quite a high level and it educates people who are interested in that field um, in what's current in, in, in practice and perhaps even in theory, though not so much for drum programming. But uh, yeah, so those are much longer affairs. And I got very used to delivering those kind of things. And they're just like um, jumped up lectures in many ways, university lectures, except it's a little bit scary when you're sitting there and you've got kind of Grammy award-winning producers in the audience who are waiting to be impressed or informed. But I, I have done a number of these things and I've done them um, in a number of European capitals, done them on both coasts of the US. And then there's a, a bunch of papers that I've given as well. So it's about disseminating research, but also um, giving sort of value-added talks to be of general interest to the, the people that are around at these things. In terms of the immersive part of your original question, of course, um, that's the what I just described was the greater mechanism. Immersive thingies are just one bit of that. And the immersive agenda is really just getting going. For instance, the Audio Engineering Society have had conferences within their conventions. The conventions are very large-scale things. Conferences are smaller themed things. Just in last October, there was a conference on audio and virtual reality. And many, um, many practitioners and theorists converged on that to talk about what they've been working on and share that work. Um, and then there's other events on the horizon where increasingly immersive audio is coming up the agenda and becoming something that becomes a focus of, of what people um, are wanting to talk about. And I think that's a good thing. We, we know it's exciting, we know it's emergent, and the academic community is increasingly acknowledging that. In tandem with that, the Audio Engineering Society have a uh, a group which has formed a working group to establish technical standards in audio for VR and such things. And that's great because, you know, we all know the, the AES connectors that you shove in the back of your preamp or something. And, you know, these guys do genuine, genuinely develop what become international standards. And so the fact that there's now a, a meeting of minds with corporate backing, I think it's going to really help kind of unify the trajectory of the, the technologies and help everyone move forward faster rather than reinventing the wheel all the time because there's no compatibility. So it, it's, it's just, it's, a, it's an emerging field and it's getting the attention it deserves in academia right now, which is great. Justin, could you give us a brief overview of concept of ambisonics and binaural audio for our perhaps less experienced audience members? Okay, well, those need to be discussed separately. Ambisonics, as I understand it, is a unified system to capture and reproduce directional audio. It was developed principally by a chap called Michael Gerzen from the University of Oxford in 1973, although the work on the topic did start a year earlier. And there were about three, maybe four important papers over a period of about three years that really defined how this worked. The idea of ambisonics is that there are a number of microphones set up on a shape called a tetrahedron. Now that's like a, a triangular pyramid. So it's got four sides and they're all equilateral triangles. And if you have a mic capsule on each one of those and you have it in a room, it picks up sound from a number of directions. But the important thing about ambisonics is it then encodes that sound. So 
What is captured by these four microphones is not the same thing which is then transmitted. There are still four signals that get transmitted, but these are now encoded, and that means they've been mathematically manipulated in order to become a format that you can do other stuff with. They call it B format, in fact, that particular thing, and that's what we like to record in the studio. We record B format ambisonics. So once you've got this B format ambisonics, what is happening is you're representing what's called the pressure and the velocity of the air molecules at the point where your, your microphone tetrahedral thing was. Now, pressure is what represents frequency in sound. It's changes in pressure. If the pressure was up and down and up and down and up and down pretty fast, we will perceive that as sound. Whereas velocity, that gives us direction. So a combination of pressure and velocity allows us to encode the directionality of sound at any one time. And of course, as time passes, then we perceive that as an immersive sound environment. So ambisonics, um, first of all, captures and encodes sounds that way. But one of the clever things about it is that to then reproduce those sounds, it's not tied to a fixed channel array, like with four speakers in the old quadraphonic days in the 70s. Ambisonics can use a number of different speaker formats, depending on what you've got, on what the venue is, what you're trying to recreate. And that makes it a very flexible system. Once you've captured this, this B format stuff, you can decode it. Remember, it's encoded. You can decode it for a given number of speakers that may have a representation of height with it. Because one of the big things, one of the exciting things about ambisonics is it doesn't just capture a horizontal or a single directional sound. It captures an enveloping sound scene, if you like. The word scene is often used. And that kind of height. And if we have an array of speakers which have a height component to them, in other, in other words, there's some that are higher up and able to play back and give us the impression of height, then ambisonic can feed those things. Or it, the ambisonics can be decoded into something for headphone listening. You mentioned binaural. It's possible to decode ambisonics into a special format that will replicate that effect for headphones, for binaural, which we'll talk about in just a moment. One of the cool things about ambisonics is once it's encoded into this B format, it's very easy to change the sound field, change the perspective of where the front is, to make it rotate. Now, this is a big deal. It's a big deal because, first of all, it's computationally cheap. You only have to multiply this B format signal by a scalar, by a number, which computers can do quite easily, and the whole sound field can appear to rotate. And one of the reasons ambisonics is getting very popular these days, in the days of virtual reality, is that if we have this B format signal and we want it to respond to the movements of our head, we can have a contraption called a head tracker in a head-mounted display. They all have these things. And it can send its data to the ambisonic decoder or, or some device associated with it, and it can make the ambisonic sound field dynamically move around in response to our head movements. And that's what can give us the impression of the sounds being static, regardless of our head moving around within them whilst listening on headphones. And that's a really big deal for immersive audio when you're in virtual reality or working 360 video. Because in the real world, we can move our heads all around and we perceive sounds as coming from relatively fixed locations around us. Normal headphones, of course, you move your head, the sounds move with the headphones. But with ambisonics, with head tracking, then suddenly these two things are separated. And that's really the key to what gives us the immersive experience of ambisonics. Now, I mentioned a microphone with 
well, I mentioned four microphones on a tetrahedral thingamajig. That will capture what's called first order ambisonics. And first order ambisonics has a given size of sweet spot where it works when you're sitting in the middle of a bunch of speakers. And it has a given spatial resolution. That's the accuracy with which you can um, detect where a sound appears to be coming from when you're listening back to it. But actually, there are other orders of ambisonics as well. These are given by um, solutions to what's called the acoustic wave equation, which was developed by a guy called Richard Feynman, who was a really interesting physicist, most of all because he played the bongos, which is really unusual for a physicist. But he did some fearsome maths, and this, this fancy equation, um, for the mathematicians listening, it's a second-order partial differential equation. That's not one that um, people have to worry about, but it has curly Ds. So you can always spot it because the Ds are written all curly. Such an equation has a number of unknowns in it, not just one unknown, it has a number of unknowns, and that's why we need this fancy maths. But the solutions to this equation give us things which are beautifully called spherical harmonics. Now these things effectively emulate microphone capture patterns at increasing resolution. And if we have more than the four microphones, if we add an extra number that point in slightly different directions with certain um, different modes of capture, we can enhance the spatial resolution that we perceive. In other words, when we're listening back to this so-called higher order ambisonic recording, we can identify sounds being much more localized than previously at first order. The sweet spot gets bigger as well. Basically, it sounds better. Then we can go up through different orders. We can go to third order, fifth order, seventh order. They often go in odd numbers for some reasons. The downside is that these things increasingly need more and more channels. With first order ambisonics to record one sound and to pan it and to um, represent it in space with the, the four channels of B format. But actually, if you want to go to third order, you're gonna need a whole bunch more channels. In fact, it's order number plus one squared. So that'd be 16. You go to fifth order, it's 36. That's starting to be an awful lot of channels just to get a slightly more accurate recording. But increasingly, this is something that people are appreciating and working towards. That's higher order ambisonics. Basically, ambisonics, it's a hierarchical system for capturing spatial audio and reproducing that spatial audio. And it's flexible. It can be, um, it can be manipulated whilst it's encoded in very particular ways. Although it's worth saying it can't be processed by regular studio effects when it's encoded because they're not designed for that kind of thing. It will corrupt the specialization, but um, it can then reproduce that audio to a number of different listening formats. So that is ambisonics. So going on to binaural, this is about trying to capture sound the same way as we naturally hear it. The thing is about a normal microphone is it's a very artificial way of capturing sound. Our heads are not microphones. A microphone is a little metally thing that you point in a certain direction and it tends to pick up sound from that direction. And it tends to pick up a bit of sound from other directions as well, but it colors it and it sounds a bit different. But actually, imagine if we could capture sound exactly the same way as we hear sound. Imagine shoving a pair of microphones in your ears. Hopefully those microphones would then pick up sound the same way as we hear the sound. And indeed, early experiments with capturing this so-called binaural sound, tried to do exactly that. The problem is that if you put a microphone in somebody's ear, then they tend to move their head around. And that sounds a bit strange when you hear it replayed because you're not aware of them moving their head and they rustle their clothes and they move, move and all kinds of things. So although putting microphones in the ear does give us quite an authentic perspective of the way we, we would actually hear, it's not really the 
best way to do it. What's better is to have a dummy head. Now, this is literally uh, a model of the human head, and it's modeled in terms of a sort of generic size and a density, and it has um, the flappy bits on your ears, the, the pinni, and um, they're very important. I'll come to them in a moment. It basically doesn't move or scratch itself or rustle its clothes, and so it can capture this binaural sound. Now, the thing about the way we perceive sound is what defines the binaural qualities. If you imagine standing in the centre of a clock, a great big clock that's spread out on the floor, imagine they're fixing Big Ben, they take the clock, the clock face off, they sit it down, you stand in the middle, and you're looking at 12 o'clock, but someone stands on the three and speaks to you. If you think about it, the sound of their voice will come from the three to you in the middle of the clock, and it's going to get to your right ear before it gets to your left ear. Because sound travels at a particular speed, it takes that bit longer to get to the left ear. Now, your brain's very good at measuring the difference in time it takes for the sound to get from one ear to the other ear, and they call that the interaural time difference. Sound also gets a bit quieter as it has to travel further. So we also have an interaural level difference, which is how the, the sound changes in its energy as it travels further. So this person that's talking to you over at three o'clock, your ears very attuned to detecting, well, I'm hearing it loud and clear in my right ear long before I'm hearing it in my left ear, so this person sounds about right at 3 o'clock. Remember, you're still staring at 12. But as that person moves around to 2 o'clock, the sound gets that little bit closer to your left ear, and it's got that little bit further away from your right ear. And so your brain has a different difference in time to measure, and it thinks, okay, that's what 2 o'clock sounds like. And as that person goes all the way around the clock face to, say, 8 o'clock, and they're now sort of behind you on your left, the sound's definitely getting to your left ear before it's getting to your right ear, and your brain can kind of figure out the interaural time difference of 8 o'clock. Although there are issues with the symmetry of clocks forward and back. Front-back confusion is a problem with binaural recording. So the brain is quite good at decoding these time and intensity differences. But there's one other factor at work, and that is that the sound hits your face, and we all have different shaped faces and heads and pinnae, the flaps in our ears. We're all, we're all different in that regard. We've got different lengths of neck, we've got different shoulder widths, all these kind of things. And the sound gets shaped by having to make that journey past one ear to get to the other ear. That shaping tends to be spectral. In other words, it shapes the colour of the sound, the timbre. And we can emulate that in electronics with a device called a filter. Filters are things which can shape the, the quality of the sound as we hear it. So there's three things at work here. There's the interaural time delay and intensity and the filtration, the, the shaping of the sound as it moves around your head. The brain decodes all these things to get a perspective of where sound is. So one of these dummy heads can capture sound exactly the same way as we hear it. But it's important to realize that when you listen back to this recording, we must listen on headphones. In normal listening on speakers, each ear hears sound from both speakers. That's one of the overriding principles of listening in stereo. But in binaural, the sound that's captured by a synthetic representation of each ear has to be directed to the individual ears for it to work properly. So if we want to, to emulate the sound of a, a sound source that's at a particular point in that clock face, we can process that sound with the interaural time and level differences and the filtration of that particular direction. And to do that, we put people in an anechoic chamber, a chamber with absolutely no reflections, and they have to sit stock still in a chair, and we play them sounds coming from all around them, and we take a number of measurements. 
and we produce what's called a head-related impulse response. Now, this is something which works in what's called the time domain. In other words, this is something that you could hear that's representative of the way the brain perceives sound at a particular point in space around it. But if we take that impulse response and we then program it into one of our filters, then it becomes a head-related transfer function is something which happens in what's called the frequency domain. These kind of filter things, they like working in the frequency domain because that's how they multiply sounds together and impose their effect onto, onto whatever audio we're going to be processing with them. So we've got the head-related transfer function, or HRTF. And if we have a bunch of measurements of this thing that are taken from a real human subject and from all around that human subject, when we want to represent a sound as coming from two o'clock or eight o'clock or whatever, we, we take a sound source and we multiply it by the HRTF and that will give the brain the impression that the sound came from that particular area. So binaural, in the context that we have it, can be generated by two different ways. Either by capturing with a dummy head, which attempts to emulate as closely as we can to the way our ears are situated in the world, hearing sounds from all around us. Front. Front left. Left. Back left. Back. Back right. Right. Front right. Or, with the HRTFs, it can be synthesized, artificially constructed by um, digital technologies imposing the sonic signature that a sound in a particular direction has. Front. Front left. Left. Back left. Back. Back right. Right. Front right. In your opinion, how instrumental do you think these formats are in the context of immersive media, newly emerged VR and AR mixed reality and 360 videos? Well, they're vitally important. They're not the only solutions to give us immersive sound. But as I already mentioned with ambisonics, one of the big things about ambisonics is that it's very easy to apply head tracking rotation to the sound field. And that's really why we've had a recent resurgence in interest in ambisonics. It's being driven by the head trackers in the head mounted displays. So it's, it's highly relevant. There are other ways to emulate space in a room. There's things like um, wave field synthesis, for instance, there's ray tracing, there's other technologies. But um, ambisonics has a, a kind of neat package that's very readily applied and in a computationally cheap fashion to give this dynamic sound field. In terms of binaural, we need to listen on headphones to get an immersive experience. And if you want to reproduce sound in three dimensions on headphones, then that is by definition binaural. So that is really the principal option we have until we start looking at solutions which don't involve physical headphones because binaural sound can be created through speakers, transauralization it's called. It's a much more complex, much less evolved um, part of the science. Um, and doubtless we will get more of that later on. But I think that, that these two things at the moment are absolute key drivers in, in the, the immersive experience, be that virtual, augmented or mixed. Do you think these solutions and systems are 
complete or we perhaps just scratching the surface in the moment? It's interesting that because the theory of ambisonics in many ways is complete. The implementation of it has got a, got a long way to go. I think it's going to get a lot better. For instance, we want to deliver ambisonic audio to get decoded live in response to people's real head movements. Now to do that, we typically have to channel four channels of audio for first order, as I mentioned. So that's not um, two channels, as we would normally expect with a headphone jack on your phone, let's say. That's four channels. But if we want to get a better sound experience, we have to have increasing channel counts for the higher order ambisonics in order to have better spatial resolution. And at the moment, it's increasingly challenging to get larger and larger channel counts delivered in real time for that kind of processing. In parallel to that, I think the, the binauralization, there's a lot of problems going on with that. The thing is that HRTFs only really work for a particular person's morphology, the shape of their body. And when we listen to a given HRTF that someone's taken a long time to create, we don't actually know what that sounded like to that person. We only know what it sounds like to us, and that is corrupted in some way by the difference in our physical shape from us to the person who produced the data on which that was based. And this is a fundamental problem with, with all sorts of binaural listening, the fact that we're using HRTF approximations. What some people do is they get a whole bunch of HRTFs and they produce some sort of statistical average that works for most people to some degree, but not for anyone very well. This is clearly an aspect of the technology that could be improved. We've got to, we've, we've got to find some way going beyond that. Many people I know have tried listening to binaural audio and going, well, it's not great, is it? And you think, well, maybe it's not. In fact, I've heard binaural many times and thought, mm, that doesn't sound very good. And actually, it's, it's a function of the HRTF relative to oneself. And we have no way of understanding what that sounds like to anyone else because we all perceive it differently. So the technology is a long, long way to evolve before we all start getting to some sort of reference standard of listening where we understand what we're hearing. The, the other thing is that um, a lot, of, a lot of listening that we do now does not involve head tracking. For instance, we can listen to um, binauralized audio on normal headphones, and we tend to hear a, an enhanced stereo width. It's very pleasant, it sounds wider, you get some sense of sound behind you maybe, very bad at producing elevation. We don't really hear the, the elevation very clearly. The elevation has um, a bit more to do with the shape of our pin eye than just the intraoral time and level differences. So. Um, Getting, getting better elevation is going to be a big part of it as well, especially in more generalised listening situations. So I think, I think there, there's, a, there's a long way to go and we've got a lot of exciting stuff to look forward to as the tech develops around us. I wanted to ask a few more questions about current situation in academia regarding this topic. Is much of the curriculum currently devoted to immersive media at the University of West London, London College of Music, for example, and in, in what stages and ways, perhaps? And is there more focus on immersive content at postgrad level compared to undergrad level? Um, I would say, um, yes, there is. Actually, in the programmes we have, there's not a large proportion of the curriculum which is devoted to so-called immersive media. There is a module on the MA Advanced Music Technology, a course that I run, and it is all concerned with um, 3D audio 
we are lucky enough to have a 13.1 studio and we look at various ways of capturing audio, various ways of processing and mixing audio in that environment. And it's a facsimile for cinema surround sound. Of course, contemporary cinemas tend to have these um, special speaker arrays, whether that's via our 3D the system we have or Dolby Atmos, the, the rival system. And there is an entire module dedicated to that. Students can then, if they get excited about it, as a number did um, in the last couple of years, they can then do their final major project in the summer and develop their skills in that regard. So they can spend the entire summer doing nothing but that, um, sitting in the studio and experimenting or creating whatever suits them really. So it's, it's self-directed, but at a postgraduate level, um, they, they do tend to end up functioning at quite a, a high level and generating a good professional standard of work. In terms of the undergraduate curriculum, there's um, rather less, but um, there are people who do a course in audio post-production, and within the audio post-production, they do have a module in game sound, and game sound, of course, is traditionally home to many of the immersive audio technologies that we have. So they will get exposed to that there, and again, they have options of doing final projects to specialise in that. Something the institution is looking towards is developing a new course dedicated towards the various aspects of virtual reality, and that will include visual aspects as well as audio. And that would really give us the chance at an undergraduate level to probably develop a, a couple of custom modules that really um, treat these things properly in much more depth and separate out the sort of games type processes from the recording engineer type processes and skill students in both of those. But that's unfortunately at our place in development at the moment. This is a very emerging field and it's gradually pervading the educational establishments and it's something we're working towards. Do you think this subject is large and significant enough to have its own course dedicated to it? I think it could. I think if you were to produce a course that was dedicated, you would need to cover a number of areas from psychoacoustics through to engineering, as in maths-driven engineering, through to creative applications. You, you would need all of those things. That would require students not just to be creatively focused as most of our portfolio of current courses at, at, at the University of West London are, it would involve a, a more engineering approach. There are so many aspects of immersive audio from a psychoacoustic perspective, perceptually, from an engineering perspective in terms of um, creating and implementing devices to control, manipulate, capture, etc. And then there's the creative aspect as well. I think if you wanted an entire course, you'd need to cross over those things. I think many courses currently in existence have one or maybe two of those things. For instance, um, you might do an MSc in audio engineering and you have some of the engineering aspects of immersive audio in there. But in the same way, in a creative course like mine, we have some creative aspects of immersive audio in there. If you were to have a dedicated course, you would need to cover all those bases. How vocationally relevant that would be, I'm not sure. I guess people could go from a course like that into psychoacoustics or into engineering or into um, creative applications or post-production or game sound. Um, I suppose, it, yes, actually thinking about it, it, it could work, but it would need a very specialist course and actually it could be a, a very good course. How well it would recruit? I don't know. I think probably in a few years, once people understand virtual technologies in the broader sense being something that exists in daily life much more, which they will, of course, as we know, then I think a course like that could sell much more. But now it's perhaps a little bit avant-garde to attract sufficient numbers, but who knows? It's certainly worth considering for the future. How much attention academics currently pay to this topic, 
in the UK and perhaps globally as well? Well, it's long been highly researched. If you look back through the, the archives of the Audio Engineering Society, you'll find research on spatial audio going right back to Bloomline in the 1930s. That was spatial audio, okay? He was moving towards stereo, but of course then in 1973, Michael Garrison, that was the birth of ambisonics. And since then, there, there have been a number of uh, seminal breakthroughs that have been um, derived from the, the academic impetus. There's a lot of people, a lot of people working in this field in many different ways. There are people doing um, listener tests to actually find out what the, the chap in the street, if you like, perceives from, from these technologies. There are people developing the technologies. There are people looking at fringe phenomena, for instance, um, perceived elevation of phantom center images and things like that. So there's a large amount of research going on at incredibly detailed levels, drilling into very tiny research questions within the greater field of immersive audio. And there are hundreds of papers that you could read. They're fairly readily available, looking at all different aspects. And what I think is not well represented right now, and this is something that's particularly of interest to me and something I've been doing some research on, are the creative possibilities and implications in applying this engineering research to the production of music, not so much the, um, the, the way the technologies work, but how they might be employed to what effect creatively, and then going full, full circle to how people might perceive those if there's any point bothering. And I think that's something which um, we're only just beginning to start thinking about. I'm very much looking forward to um, reading further studies in that regard. Can you talk to us about your idea of creating a 3D audio research network? And do you think it will benefit the industry and the community of people who specialise and work in this field? Well, absolutely I do, and that's why I'm doing it. To put it in perspective, I'm currently preparing a bid for funding to the UK Arts and Humanities Research Council, together with my friend Hyungkook Lee, who is uh, an engineer, a technical guy at the University of Huddersfield. And we have identified the need to bring together people who are involved with 3D audio. A lot of people are working in 3D audio in very different fields. We've mentioned psychoacoustics and engineering and creative possibilities. But architects are engaging with 3D modelling. They model the acoustics of spaces, of railway stations, to find out how well the public address systems work. Medicine is using 3D audio. Um, there's assistive technologies using 3D audio metering to help um, visually impaired people compensate by using oral responses. There's post-production in cinema um, for the home, looking at ways of producing 3D specialization in people's living rooms with those very non-ideal setups that they have. Then, of course, there's games. And then, of course, there's the thing we all think of, which is virtual reality or 360 video. All of these things tend to be using 3D audio. And what Hyungkook and I are trying to do is provide a platform for all the people who are working in those domains, unaware of what each other are doing and what the best practice is in some actually different industry. We're looking at ways to bring these people together, both in terms of physical gatherings and in a virtual space, and producing a body of knowledge, trying to define cross-industrially relevant research questions, which are informed by different aspects of industry, but um, actually could be then specialised and refined in particular aspects of industry, so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. It will be a, a meeting place to come together and talk about what it is that we do and to share practice across fields and to hopefully hasten everyone's trajectory towards their common goals. And it should just be a, 
a bunch of interesting conversations, as well as um, producing um, hopefully unexpected partnerships and uh, research projects that come out of those meetings that wouldn't otherwise have happened. One of the aspects of the network is that we're bringing academia in contact with industry and we're also having outreach internationally. We're controlling the activities of the network with a so-called steering group. And the steering group will be derived from a mixture of engineering type academics and creative practice industrial partners. The idea being that the creative practitioners have the best notion of what they need to see developing in their particular field in order to develop their, their business and their activities. And they'll have a chance to talk with academics who are at the cutting edge of research and who best understand the, the possibilities and the directions that research might move to actually bring those perspectives together to form future research possibilities. In addition to that, we're having um, uh, an elite international advisory committee. These will be people um, from overseas areas, from the United States, from Asia, and there will be eminent industry practitioners, and they will advise the steering group on how to guide the network's activities. The steering group will form a, a set of workshops, of keynote uh, lectures, of research questions to be discussed, discussion points, things for physical gatherings. And so the general members of the network will get together and um, they will contribute to these discussions. And after the discussions, Hyunkuk and I will form grey literature papers. In other words, informal academic reports of everything that was sort of said and suggested and discussed and we'll put those up online and invite further comments from around the world. So um, there is a, a sort of organized structure to the network that will hopefully um, reach out and draw people in and get more and more people. We are putting the submission in fairly soon for this and we will find out if we get the money in spring next year. And we're very excited. We very much hope that the Research Council will deem this a worthy project and um, award us funds to actually make it happen. I think it could be really exciting. You have been involved in making an interactive album application. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about this project and how it works? Sure. This is something that I did with uh, my friend, Professor Rob Tosin, um, who's now at the University of Westminster. About four years ago, we started work on an AHRC-funded project to develop an app that could deliver real-time interactive playback. The idea being that the listener could sit with their phone and listen to a song and through some very simple gestures, they could move their finger around on the phone and the music could change in real time. The music might change radically or subtly depending on how the artist wanted to populate that. We worked with an artist called Daisy in the Dark for a pilot release back in 2015. And what Daisy in the Dark did was produced bespoke content for the app so that when you moved your finger around um, on the on the GUI, you could hear the genre of the music change sometimes. So, for instance, you could um, be listening to the radio mix of a song, but with a simple gesture, change it into a dub version, dub reggae version, or you could change it into a dubstep, more electronic version, or you could make it sound more acoustic or make it sound more electronic. Basically, finding a version of the song to suit your mood at that particular moment in time, be it chilling out on a Sunday morning or gearing up on a Saturday night. The technology doesn't need to be implemented with that sort of um, um, radical genre shifting thing. The technology can just draw on whatever materials the artist has um, sitting there at the point of printing a mix with some muted tracks. Maybe the strings never made it to the final mix print, or maybe there was a guitar solo that didn't get through. Those things can be recycled and brought back to give the fans a richer experience 
not to be imposed on the track in the fashion of a mix, but to give the listener the chance to, to actually bring in those elements or change those elements and just form a, an enriched listening experience. Some artists might choose to interpret the technology in the fashion of a live band. For instance, um, you could have a number of guitar solos and the technology could seamlessly move between those guitar solos to produce a uniquely improvised version that was different every night, just like you'd expect if you went to see a band in a concert. The notion of interactive, so far as I've described, it's been very much moving your finger around on the screen, but that's a very, it's rather gamified. You have to do the music and actually I think the the biggest thing is not doing the music, but music should be a passive listening experience, but that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be dynamic. The system that we developed actually allows the machine to take you on a unique musical journey through whatever content the artist has used to populate the app. So you just ask it to go whilst you wash your dishes or whatever it is you're doing, and you will hear a unique version of that song. Next time you listen to the song, if you point the machine in that same direction, it will give you a unique version of that song. It's almost like instant remixing. The remixing is perhaps too strong a word because that implies you know, putting a beat in there or something, but it's it's instant real-time control. Beyond that, the app pays homage to the days of the LP. Of course, people are getting um, increasingly um, involved with LPs. More and more bands are releasing 12-inch um, format now, and there's a lot of reason for that. It's a reaction to over-digitization, to the um, impersonality and banality of having a, a, a playlist on a, on a screen. Suddenly there's there's rich photo content, there's the credits of the musicians involved in, in the creation of the work. When was the last time you saw the credits when you were looking at iTunes? It, it doesn't happen. And that's something that, that should matter. It's something that everyone who holds a 12 inch sleeve in their hand values. And this app, actually allows rich media content, allows pictures, allows the story of the song, allows artist biography, the credits, the lyrics, all kinds of stuff to be packaged together. So when you want to find out who did something in the song or find the lyrics, you don't have to visit five different websites to get all those different things. It's all there in a, in a packaged product. And that hopefully forms a, a more intense, unified experience for the consumer that um, gives the artist a, a firmer base to present their identity. It has all the other links to YouTube videos and social media and whatnot as well. Again, all packaged in there, which can be helpful for people that, that want to populate that. But it's based around a shell. It can be customized for different artists. And earlier this year, Rob and I were again awarded AHRC funding to commercialize this project with the Warner Music Group, one of the three major record labels. What we're going to do over the next three years is move beyond our pilot study and take three major artists from the Warner roster and release content in this interactive app format with them. So hopefully um, Warner will be shouting about that as and when they release. So over 2018, watch out for those coming your way in the App Store soon. Would it be released in the form of bespoke app for people then to consume that to get content? The, the format is an iOS app. Unfortunately, um, we did want to open it out to a greater proportion of the world by putting it on Android, but the technology going on underneath the, the surface of what is a very simple interface in the app is actually very complicated. We basically had to build a digital audio workstation underneath a, a complete audio engine with all the capabilities of routing and soloing and muting tracks. Um, and we developed some quite advanced intelligent crossfades for which we've got a patent application currently under review. But it's very complicated. And unfortunately, Android simply doesn't have the facility to support code of that complexity. 
At the time we were building the app, the only multi-track audio device you could get for iOS was GarageBand. And I don't think there's many to this day. And I think the reason is it was so complicated to, to build that multi-track audio engine that's going on under the surface. You could perceive of the app, if you like, as having three layers. There's the user interface layer there at the top, then there's the audio engine at the bottom, and in between those is an algorithmic layer, the way in which the user interface or machine-generated instructions controls the audio engine. So the thing is kind of got three functional blocks, as it were, that interact. And so for that reason, it's only available on iOS. Can you tell us about Innovation in Music and what your involvement is within this event? Innovation in Music is a conference series that's been going for a number of years now. It happens every two years and it's cross-disciplinary. The idea is that whereas many conferences are very specialised, very niche, um, and everyone there is working in a very similar field, and that's great for drilling down deep into those subjects. The idea of a cross-disciplinary conference is that if we have people who are working at the cutting edge of, say, performance composition or um, creative applications of technology or sound for games or music production or audio engineering or music industry type activities, it can be really interesting for all those guys to come together and find out more about what each other are doing at the cutting edge. So the conference is a platform um, where people come together, they present their papers. We have um, keynote speeches from eminent people. For instance, this year, Imogen Heap was there. We have um, panel sessions, we have workshops, and we publish peer-reviewed proceedings. That qualifies the papers that people bring to the conference as research. So the, the papers that they write up, they go to anonymous peer reviewers who say, yes, this is novel, yes, this is good, this is new. And then we publish physical books, old school, um, which actually feature a collection of those papers. So it acts like a multi-author reference book that can be consulted. We're currently talking to a major US publisher for the next book, so that's quite exciting. And we'll be running the next conference in 2019 at the University of Westminster in London with our possible special event in Europe in 2018. I think one of the wonderful things about this year's conference were the range of keynote speakers that we had. I mentioned Imogen Heap, who very kindly came along and talked about um, not um, not perhaps the Mimu gloves, which are uh, it's a fair, fairly well-trodden path, but she talked about visions of um, how music industry models might function moving towards the future. Then Peter Oxenholm was there. He's a forensic musicologist. He's one of a small number of people who settle disputes over musical intellectual property by drilling right into the music and analysing hidden harmonic structures and phrasing and timbral nuance. Um, and settling cases in court and indeed out of court. Then there was Jonathan Bailey, who was the chief technical officer from Isotope. He came and gave a wonderful insight into some of those great technologies that Isotope are well known for. And then there was Talvin Singh, who is the most fantastic um, composer, producer and tabla player. And Talvin talked about how his career path evolved and gave some wonderful demonstrations on the tabla and played along with some of his compositions. So those just being figurehead activities beyond general body of academic papers, I think that's probably a fairly unique feature of our conference. And I know for many people, that collective package of keynotes was quite a highlight. Where do you see immersive audio heading in the future? It's interesting. I think there's a lot of technologies around the corner which have yet to emerge. Transauralization is one. This is binaural audio without headphones. It's possible to make binaural audio where we can perceive sound 
sounds from behind us, from above us, from a pair of speakers. The problem is with this that, or one of the main problems, is it's very hard to um, have it work when your head is moving around. It's very hard to, even harder, to have it work for more than one person in a room. But I think it could be very, very cool if we could project binaural audio onto an individual in a natural listening position at home. That could be a very exciting thing. I think after talking about head tracking in ambisonics, head tracking is currently, of course, very much in the domain of head-mounted displays in VR, etc. But I look forward very much to the time when head tracking becomes a feature of mainstream audio-only headphones, and we can have that immersive experience in regular headphones without needing to put on the scuba diving gear and watch something at the same time. Um, I think that there is definitely scope to have that immersive audio in normal daily listening. Before we finish, I would like to ask you a few more questions. Which project that you have been involved with are you most proud of and why? Well, I guess I would have to say very good egotistically um, the production of my own album that I made in pursuit of my doctorate. It took 19 years. That's quite a long time. You hear about classical dudes writing symphonies and spending that long. This had nowhere near that level of sophistication. But um, it was quite interesting and it was heavily conceptualised and none of the musicians ever met and which isn't that unusual these days, but neither did they play any of the performances that made it to the album. The entire album was completely contrived out of tiny slivers of performances on a note for note, or even sometimes less than a note basis, and then stitched together to form new virtual performances. And the music was sometimes quite complex, electronic jazz in places, drawing influences from prog rock to classical, but it was very, very intense editing and it took 19 years. So I think I can look back on that, whatever quality I ended up with, but look back on that process and be quite proud of that. What would be your one piece of advice that you could give to an audience who are either into VR or or perhaps are aspiring young engineers or students willing to explore and get into this field and embrace it. And is there anything you, if there's one message you would like to leave to these people, yeah. what would that be? Yeah, absolutely. It's the same advice as I would kind of give to anyone really. And that's, you've got to study the theory and practice your approach. And that's not just the stuff that you want to know, but all the stuff that other people might need to get done, but they don't know how to do, because that's what's going to make you employable. Then you have to network hard and get yourself about so other people know that you can do it. If you're the best at what you can do, that everyone who knows you knows, then when they have a gig, they're going to call you. But if you're the second best person that they know, they're still going to call the best person. So you have to make sure that you become that best person and that everyone knows that you can do that stuff, and then the phone will ring and you'll get work. That's a great piece of advice. Is there anything else that's left and said that you would like to add? Oh well, yeah, slightly philosophical. It's very hard making a living in the creative industries. I think that's well understood, but we still want to do it. And I think you've got to chase your dreams. You just work hard for as long as you can. And once in a while, you've got to appraise things. But remember, success is getting what you want, but happiness is wanting what you have. And you've got to be very careful not to get those confused. Justin, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast hosted by Oliver Cadell with guest Justin Patterson. This episode was produced by Gillian Duffy, Giacomo Corpino and Oliver Cadell and features music by Novs Bergamo. Thank you for listening. 